Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. And so I have an announcement to make. Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina and President Donald Trump's ambassador to the UN, is running for president. May the best woman win. But not everyone on the right is impressed. In a brutal Valentine's Day editorial, the Wall Street Journal said that there is, quote, no clear rationale for her candidacy. Over at the New York Times, the paper assembled 10 pundits to assess Haley's candidacy, and the majority opinion was that she shouldn't be taken very seriously at all. Nikki Haley will not be the next president. Read the headline on that piece. When reading these assessments that confidently predict that Nikki Haley is doomed, I couldn't help but think about 2008 when everyone said Barack Obama would be steamrolled by Hillary Clinton. Or 2016, when pundits, myself included, declared that Donald Trump would never win the Republican nomination, and even if he did, would never be president. Or, in the 2020 Democratic primaries, when the same thing was said about Joe Biden. Someone else who remembers this history? Nikki Haley. At her announcement speech on Wednesday in Charleston, South Carolina, Haley acknowledged the low expectations she faces. And, she suggested, she sees it as a feature, not a bug. I've been underestimated before. That's always fun. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Nikki Haley entered politics in 2004 by defeating South Carolina's longest-serving House member. In 2010, she leapt from the State House to the governor's mansion after defeating a field of more seasoned politicians. She was 38 years old. Now, at 51, she's attempting another big political upset. So, how does she intend to do it? In her speech this week, she laid out two big themes to contrast herself with Trump. First, she talked about generational change. And mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. And second, she talked about electability. We've lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. And how does that translate into toppling Trump? Well, to answer that question, we turn to Rob Godfrey. Rob was a senior aide and spokesman for Haley when she was governor, and he also has a long professional relationship with Haley's successor, Governor Henry McMaster, who has endorsed Donald Trump. Rob spoke to me from a studio in Columbia about Nikki Haley's long career of defying expectations, her record as governor, and about South Carolina's uniquely influential role in American politics. A common theme of her announcement in Charleston on Wednesday was she's often underestimated. Yes. And I I think one of the things she's talking about there is uh, her entry into politics when she first ran for the statehouse and then uh, when she ran for governor 
Take us back to those two races and tell us a little bit about what the dynamics were and why she was um, underestimated and how she prevailed. What are the important lessons from those two races when we're considering Nikki Haley's presidential campaign? Well, I wasn't around for her first race for the state house, but I can tell you a little bit about it. It was in 2004, and the longest-serving uh, member of the state house, a representative named um, Larry Kuhn, I believe was his name, was trying to decide whether to retire. He was going to retire. He wasn't going to retire. Um, he ultimately made the decision to retire, but then he unretired. So you're talking about a guy who was uh, a not just a well-known commodity um, in Columbia and in his district, but um, she was absolutely underestimated at the uh, at the time. You know, you had the establishment in the state house lining up against her to support Mr. Coon because they'd served with him for so long. You know, whether it's the House Republican Caucus or it's the leadership, or it's the folks who assumed that a thirty year incumbent would would pretty easily dispense with whoever decided to you know file against him. But there's no one who does the kind of one-on-one door-knocking, retail politics, connecting with people one-on-one than Nikki Haley. Um, and she did the work it takes to, um, to upset uh, Mr. Kuhn and force those uh, members of the legislative leadership, including the Speaker of the House, who is David Wilkins, uh, who went on to serve as ambassador to Canada under President George Bush and who's a uh, been a supporter and is a supporter of 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 Governor Haley's now. Um, you know, all those folks were were forced to reckon with uh, having been on the wrong side of that primary and endorsed her. And and you know, she began to write the history of her career. Then she was just thirty two years old in two thousand four. Yeah, taking yeah. on someone who'd been in office as long as she'd been alive. I mean, yeah. not not an insignificant thing. I'd never realized this before, but that dynamic, it mirrors uh, Barack Obama's first race. In Chicago, Alice Palmer was vacating a state Senate seat. She jumped into a congressional primary, and Obama jumped in to replace her as state senator. She lost the congressional primary and said, oops, I actually, (laughs) she was a longtime incumbent, a pillar of the South Side community in Chicago. And so Obama was this kid from who didn't even, you know, wasn't even from Chicago. And um, she jumped back in the primary and tried to get Obama to back down. He wouldn't back down. And he ended up challenging her nominating petitions and actually getting her kicked off the ballot. That's, that's how he won that race. But I never realized until you just told this, this version of, of her 2010 campaign how similar that is, where you had a long, longtime incumbent jump out and jump back in. And the upstart challenger said, no, I'm staying. <laughs> I'm yeah, just going to have to absolutely. beat you. And, you know, it also bears, you know, it also is, is worth saying, too, um, they threw everything they could at her um, because she looked and was different than, um, you know, the traditional kind of candidate um, who'd represented Lexington County at the time. When you say that, do you mean there, there was an explicitly racist campaign against her? Um, there were people who talked about um her family's faith in very derogatory ways. Yeah. Um, and her family's faith, which is very important to them. You know, her parents are, are devout Sikhs, um, and they are the sweetest, most wonderful people in the world. And, you know, I came to appreciate them having gotten to know them over the years. So anyways, you know, they threw those attacks at her. 
um, you know, in underestimating her too, and in, and in underestimating the way that the good people of the district rejected that. Um, and so this is the first example. Don't underestimate Nikki Haley, which, you know, transitions into that governor's race uh, that she jumped into in 2009, which ended up being a race against a sitting lieutenant governor, a sitting attorney general, and a sitting congressman. Um, I happened to work in the primary for the sitting attorney general, Henry McMaster, who is now the governor of the state and on track to be the longest serving governor in the history of the state. And so um, as when she got into that race, as she talks about it now, um, she was in fourth place and she was Nikki who. <laughs> and it must always be an interesting vantage point when you're watching someone from the perspective of a candidate you're working for that she's then uh, beating. Right. Was there a moment or an event where she kind of broke through and that campaign really uh, changed where she, she started to surge or was it more of a kind of slow and steady thing? When she was able to get up on television, both uh, herself and with the help of, of an outside group that supported um, an issue that she championed in roll call voting, Roll call voting was a, an issue that um, helped really propel her statewide profile because she found out. But there was a study that was done that found that um, that revealed that something like nearly ninety eight percent of the votes cast in the state house were done by voice votes rather than on the record on matters of budget items, and so that allowed members of the general assembly to vote how to spend tax dollars. Um, in a way that didn't reveal to the public how they were actually voting. So the person you'd sent to represent you in Columbia, you had no idea exactly how they were voting to spend your tax dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, so Representative Haley and, uh, and another colleague of hers, it was an issue that she butted heads with the leadership over. And that fight with the leadership over this issue um, helped propel her to statewide notoriety. I think too many people ascribe, uh, you know, her nomination to support from Sarah Palin. Yeah. I think the support from Sarah Palin was important in one regard. It ignited an earned media blowtorch uh, that benefited Governor Haley for about a week, you know, the day before Palin came to town, the day Palin was in town, and a few days afterwards. It was difficult to punch through the news cycle. Um, because at that time, I mean, you remember uh, people who were following politics closely at the time. Remember, Sarah Palin was very much getting behind candidates, you know, much in the same way a Jim DeMint was doing at the time. And so in that context, it was tough to break through the news cycle. But that endorsement, while it was helpful, is not what began her ascent. Yeah, she'd already started to break out. Absolutely. A month before that. What's the backstory with that endorsement? How did she engineer that? What's the, the general kind of story in South Carolina politics about it? Well, I mean, Governor Palin, who, uh, you know, is as mercurial as anybody you've ever known, uh, was given a speech at some NRA event near South Carolina around that time. She heard about Nikki Haley. 
understood that Nikki Haley um, was a challenger candidate, um, a strong female candidate, um, a pro-life reformer, and, you know, kind of in the same vein that Governor Palin was. And she heard about um, Nikki and she and her council of one, Todd Palin, made the decision that they were going to come down and get behind Nikki Haley and the rest was history. What are the lessons from the general election? She didn't win by a landslide. I think she got like, what, 51% of the votes? She didn't win by a landslide. There were a group of people who underestimated her in the general election. In the general election, what was Nikki Haley's opponent's main case against her? What was the gist of that campaign? He tried to tie her to her predecessor, Mark Sanford. Um, as someone who didn't work well with the General Assembly, as someone who wasn't going to be for uh, economic development and job creation. And um, kind of most insidiously, uh, he and some uh, outside allies and some disgruntled conservative activists, they tried to prosecute this case that you can't trust her. And to be quite candid with you, those questions of trust and the way particularly the outside group uh, cast those, um, and you can find one ad that's particularly offensive. It was this dark, grainy photo, unflattering photo that says there's so much we don't know about her, but we know we can't trust her. I mean, the clear implication there was this is someone who's different than us. This is someone who looks different than us. This is someone who doesn't have the same kind of roots that we have, despite the fact that she was born and raised in South Carolina. That really starts to be uh, the kind of narrative being prosecuted that it doesn't take someone who's all that cynical to say, wait a minute, are these attacks that allies of the Democratic nominee for governor are making that are racist, that are meant to try to stoke some of those really ugly fears in people um, and emotional reactions in people that we thought, you know, the country and the South and South Carolina were moving beyond. Yeah. And so those things were particularly um, disappointing to see. But, uh, you know, some days not surprising. When she was in office. Yeah. What's the, uh, so she obviously won that race despite those attacks. She did win that race. And she became the first Indian American woman to be governor of a state in the United States. And she became the first uh, minority woman governor of South Carolina. But more than that, uh, she just became an unequivocal and outspoken advocate for reform at the state house. There were legislators who were willing to work with her. But when there were legislators that weren't willing to work with her or legislators she thought was wrong or she thought were standing in the way, um, of the reforms that she thought were important and that people um, supported, she wasn't afraid to call them out. So um, there's a difference between being the chairman of the Go Along to Get Along Caucus yeah. and leadership. And Governor Haley always erred on the side of leadership in that context. So I want to talk a little bit about her tenure as governor, but let's do it sort of uh, with respect to 
the current campaign? Because when I, when I listen to you talk about that primary and that general election, and then I see how Haley is being greeted by a lot of political pundits in, in this 2024 presidential primary, um, and it raises some of the same issues that were prominent in her 2004 campaign and her 2010 campaigns. And for instance, the Wall Street Journal editorial page greeted Nikki Haley's entrance into the presidential primary with a headline that says, there's no clear rationale for her candidacy. And the piece goes on to sort of uh, dismantle her candidacy uh, to a certain extent. Um, Rich Lowry, obviously longtime National Review writer, but also writes opinion columns for Politico. He wrote this after her announcement video. He said uh, Haley's campaign will be a, quote, highly conventional campaign, and there will be a number of other candidates with as strong or a stronger case to represent generational change. Um, so she's back in this, uh, you know, being underestimated position. A lot of the, 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 the handicapping in the first 24, 48 hours since the, the announcement video came out has been along those lines from uh, conservative pundits. I noticed the New York Times gathered 10 people together to talk about her, her campaign. And, you know, basically seven of them uh, said she shouldn't be taken seriously. I wrote that that analysis is uh, wrong and premature and sort of tried to lay out the case for why she should be taken a little bit more more seriously. I'm just curious what you've uh, what you make of that initial um, reaction, you know, especially coming from you know conservative places like national like a National Review writer and uh, the Wall Street Journal and uh, some of the folks uh, on the right that the New York Times put together for that piece I mentioned. Right. So a couple things here. So I think that the first and most appropriate and most measured reaction to the to um, the Haley announcement was that it was a uh, a good and effectively produced event that looked presidential, that looked energetic, and that looked like uh, people were excited um, in her home state about the prospect of having their former governor run for president. Not a surprise. To hear what editorial pages have to say about the candidacy of Nikki Haley is not terribly relevant to me because I've seen over the course of time the streets littered with wrong takes um, <laughs> about Nikki Haley's candidacy, Nikki Haley's initiatives, Nikki Haley's leadership. So um, while it was produced um, very effectively, while it looked good, while it was a job well done, while there was a great crowd, while it looked presidential, and while it was a stark contrast to the very low energy event Donald Trump held at the South Carolina State House just a few weeks ago, you know, we don't have any idea what this race is going to look like three months or six months from now. We have no idea whether... Um, the entry into this race of Governor Haley is going to accelerate the decision-making uh, process or timeframes of other candidates, all of whom we've heard um, much speculation about over the course of time. Um, what we do know right now, though, um, is that there are no two greater foils 
um, that you're going to see, you know, in a campaign uh, than Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. It's not just the generational argument that Nikki Haley made, but it's uh, the fact that you have one candidate who talks about the past, talks about issues of the past, talks about things in a way that people from the past talk about things. He frames issues uh, in a way that people from the past talk about. His cultural references are all from the 70s and the <laughs> 80s, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, and you have, uh, you know, someone else who is very much focused on the future. Well, you know, while I don't think that things like cognitive tests for candidates of a certain age, you know, have any place in uh, in the conversation, I think that, you know, the, any, any test, uh, a candidate is required to pass should be taken care of on election day. That's why we have elections. Yep. Um, I don't think you could see two greater foils and, uh, as two greater foils, you know, I don't think Donald Trump has ever been pitted, has ever been pitted one-on-one against someone with Nikki Haley's story. Nikki Haley's background and record of results or Nikki Haley's strengths. I mean, she can throw a punch. She can absorb a punch um, effectively in a way that he's never seen before. And I think it'll be interesting to see uh, how that dynamic works. But that's not to say that she's going to react to anything and everything that he says, because that also um, discounts the fact that she is as disciplined and focused of a candidate um, as he's ever seen. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of case she's making against Trump. Um, Reading through the speech a couple of times last night, the two big arguments are about a new generation of leader, right? Uh, That's where the the mandatory competency tests for <laughs> candidates over 75 years old uh, comes in, which I, I note that Donald Trump is 76, so he uh, qualifies for that test. And Joe Biden uh, is just turned 80, both qualify for that test. So it's always useful when you can run the same uh, message in a primary and a general election. <laughs> so that works in both of those. The other part of it is this electability argument which I think is, you know, everyone who runs against Trump is going to to make that case, right? That this guy keeps leading Republicans to defeat. She pointed out Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the uh, seven out of eight of the last presidential elections. You've been around campaigns a long time. The pluses and minuses of the electability argument. I mean, I've seen it work in some races, but the the electorate, the the partisans, have to really believe, like, man. We've been out of power for a long time. So, you know, that's why we've got to turn the page. I think of like Clinton in 1992 when he could make that argument to Democratic primary voters after Democrats had been out of power for 12 years. For 12 years. It's only been four years. Right. It's only been four years. And this is, in fact, an open ended question. And um, while I think that. Governor Haley's message of a renewal of American pride is something that voters will always applaud and always clap. I think it's something that primary voters will always be, um, will always get behind. It is very much a, you know, uh, something that probably resonates a little bit more in a general election. I think that 
while the midterms did prove that uh, Donald Trump's candidates are not good general election candidates, um, it also showed that there is still an appetite in the Republican primary for um, candidates who have these emotional appeals to grievance, these emotional appeals to um, some of these battles and the culture war that they see, whether it's things like CRT or it's, you know, voter fraud or it's, you know, the last election and, and, and stuff like that. You know, one thing that Lindsey Graham said um, that, has, that, that stuck with me when he um, endorsed President Trump two weeks ago or whenever it was, was that he said, you know, there are people who say they support President Trump's policies, but they don't support the president. Well, there's no Trump policies without Trump himself. And, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll see if President Trump can make that case. Yeah. Um, but, you know, hey, at the end of the day, um, looking back at that announcement, if, uh, if the dichotomy President Trump wants to draw again this year is low energy versus high energy, I know I've seen two kickoff events in South Carolina <laughs> and one and one of them was much higher energy than the other. Love it. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Reading the speech, the new generation argument she makes and the electability argument she makes are so uh, are so clearly targeted uh, at, at Donald Trump. Um, Ron DeSantis is the sort of uh, is is the candidate who's being set up as the main foil to Trump. He is um, forty four years old, I believe, um, and w- uh, so the new generation argument won't work against him. He also just won a massive re-election in a state that that's bigger than South Carolina. Just putting what um, she didn't seem to have to uh, take any fire at at DeSantis in that speech. It was really at the you know the the, the front runner uh, Trump. How do you think she you know assume that that works? Assume uh, you know that the tag team against Trump works in a way that it didn't in 2016 and and one of these candidates uh one or two of these candidates surge ahead of him what's the what's the way to beat DeSantis uh if you're if you're uh Nikki Haley I don't have anything bad to say about Ron DeSantis uh he's been a good governor of Florida he obviously um has delivered results to the people of his state and they reelected him um, he's also done a uh, done a uh, done a a good job so far of cultivating some relationships in South Carolina. Um, he held a fundraiser last summer, um, really in the backyard of both Governor Haley and Senator Scott, um, which was a bold move in and of itself. But no one's ever accused Ron DeSantis of being understated. 
Um, <laughs> and so, you know, uh, as a 44-year-old sitting governor who's been on the ballot recently, he's in practice. Um, you know, it's it's like an athlete. He doesn't have to train a lot uh, to be ready to take the field and take the field to practice and be ready for game time. So I think um, if he makes a decision uh, to get into the race, which all um, all evidence points to the fact that he is doing that, he's effectively using his um, legislative session to um, highlight um, to highlight issues that are important not just to him but are important to Republicans nationally. What's interesting about Ron DeSantis, according to pundits, he of course hasn't said this himself explicitly that I've seen in any sort of news coverage, is that the pitch is that he's a a, a better educated, more polished, and less um, and less volatile and less erratic, you know, and less erratic. Um, Donald Trump, i.e. a Donald Trump um, policy guy without being Donald Trump, someone yeah. someone who is a direct contrast to what uh, Senator Graham said it's going to take to win this thing, right? But what people are setting him up to do is, is make the argument that he is uh, Trump policies without being Trump. It'll be interesting to see if he can prove Senator Graham wrong. So that's very that's really interesting because at the end of the day, her lane is, for lack of a better word, you know, anti-Trump, anti-MAGA, and um, if I'm reading between the lines of what you know, what your your analysis here, and a lot of the critique. Everybody's of Trump, talking well, about lanes. I think having I have having a discussion. I know about I lanes hate that. Pre, I hate that thing too. Premature um, and cliche, right? Fair, fair enough. Are, okay, I agree. Like, yeah. yeah, we've got two candidates in right now, and we could have as many as you know six candidates in. We could have. Yeah. We could Maybe have more. the unprecedented. Yeah, we could have the unprecedented scenario where we have two candidates from two different from two different states. Yes, which yeah, is, we're gonna get which to that next. Which is a wild thing to think about. So, um, yeah, you guys yeah, in South I, Carolina yeah. are, are, well, so no, I totally agree with you. For, let's put aside the, the the lanes cliche, but I, I I see what you're saying about like, you know, she's 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 going hard, not 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 hard because the case yesterday was kind of subtle, but she's she's making the really big picture case against Trump. Uh, you know, this guy's brought Republicans to you know three. Uh, elections in a row that uh, that they, they they underperformed or lost, um, and that it's time it's time for a new generation. But what a, a lot of the the anti MAGA stuff um, can be thrown at De- De- DeSantis uh, uh, in a way. If I'm I'm reading if I'm reading you uh, correctly, say you that know, one more like, time. Yeah, it's like, you know, this is, uh, I interviewed uh, Sununu, who's thinking about jumping in the race. And, you know, he described, I think he said something like, you know, DeSantis is sort of a Trump mini me, right? So he didn't really have a, he didn't really have a big distinction between what he would, how he would go after Trump and how he would go after DeSantis is like, you know, Trump is X, Y, and Z and DeSantis is his, his, his mini me. Um, Again, that's, that's the kind of language somebody who may run against somebody is going to use. I don't have anything yeah. bad to say about. No, Ron I'm DeSantis. not putting those he's words in your mouth. Governor. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. He's been, he's been a good governor. And I think, you know, if you believe, if you believe that, um, 
that the more candidates in a primary make the ultimate um, nominee better than like, you know, we should welcome all comers to the field. So speaking of all comers, um, you may have a, 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 a senator or a senator from South Carolina jumping in the race. Um, right. How exciting. Another historic. Yeah. Yeah. You guys well, must I mean, be it, loving it. Well, it would be an exciting thing to have um, two people who are um, so popular in South Carolina, who've done so much in South Carolina, and who represent the future of any party that's not dying. Um, you know, getting in to the race uh, for president and talking about things that people care about. Tim Scott's such an interesting candidate to me. Yeah, let's talk about that. For none of the reasons that you hear the press talk about. All of the reasons that the press are fascinated with Tim Scott are things like demographic box checks, okay? We're not talking about that stuff. What we're talking about, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that Tim Scott has led on some interesting apolitical issues. Now, while he checks all of the conservative boxes you need to check, in a primary. Um, he's fought back against the right people. He's taken on the right issues uh, for conservatives. And he has won. And he has warded off challengers uh, in his races. Um, and uh, But he's also talked about things that Republicans don't traditionally talk about. Criminal justice reform. Education reform. Opportunity zones. Ways to, you know, ways to build, you know, minority-owned businesses, stuff like that. All things that are common sense that people want to hear about in a way that is, that's new, in a way that's personal. I mean, think about um, the way that he took to the floor and talked about his own personal experience being profiled um, during the discussion about police brutality. There's nothing... Um, one that's more important to talk about than issues like police brutality and issues like criminal justice reform, because as we continue to see, we have a problem in this country, but we've got to have other voices that bring people together to talk about it and that have credibility when they talk about it. Tim Scott does. And he and I think that the more people get to know him, the more they will the more that they will want to hear from him on stuff like that. Can you shed any uh light on what his relationship with Haley is like? Sure. Um, you know, it's it's super interesting and super fun. They served in the state house together briefly. Um, they obviously were elected to Scott the US House uh Nikki to the governorship in the same year in 2010 in the tea, in the Tea Party year, he defeated in his runoff in the U.S. House Senator Strom Thurmond's son. Um, and, so not a bad uh, name and, to have in uh, South Carolina politics, I'm assuming. Right, and uh, and they worked together well as federal as a federal official and a governor works well together. She appointed him to the United States Senate. They continued to work well together. And over the course of time, they've remained great friends. 
They have, not surprisingly, common supporters, common donors, um, and, um, you know, that makes for a, um, you know, that probably makes for an anxious time uh, if, you're a, <laughs> if you're a donor or a supporter about whether you want to make public um, your support or whether you want to keep your powder dry or you just may want to be quiet and cast your vote and get this thing out of the way should Tim Scott get into the race. But he hasn't gotten into the race yet. He's yeah. taking some of the steps that people would traditionally take if they're seriously looking at it. But um, if Tim Scott got into the race, it would be a great source of pride for South Carolinians to see what? two people, um, you know, around the same age. They represent that, that you know, generational change we've talked about. They represent um, a new way of talking about important issues, Um and um, and I think that he'd be nothing but an asset to the field again. You know, in a primary, um, in fact, Nikki's always said it, in a primary, you welcome as many candidates as you want to, because ultimately a robust discussion of ideas benefits the voters who ultimately will get a chance to choose the strongest candidate. What's your uh, betting on whether Scott jumps in or not? You'd have to ask him. I'm not. Well, I know that, but <laughs> I don't. I don't even bet on the. I don't bet on the NCAA basketball tournament. <laughs> um, it looks like he's going to do it. So you've, you've got really the the, the Republican uh, establishment pretty divided. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham is with Trump. Scott might run. Uh, Ralph Norman, I think, surprised a lot of people. Very uh, MAGA. Uh, congressman, he introduced Nikki Haley at the announcement in, tr- well, in Charleston. I think it says, I think it so, says a lot of good things about yeah. Ralph that he endorsed uh, Governor Haley uh, for president because despite his Trump in, love, they, yeah, they served in the state house together. They yeah. worked together a lot. They were taxpayer heroes for uh, for Governor Sanford, um, and um, and Governor Haley's always been a strong supporter of his. Loyalty still matters in this game. And I think Ralph, um, despite some of the controversies that he can sometimes uh, <laughs> stir up, it, he, he's, a good, he's a good man. And I think— Yeah, that, as, a, um, as, a, as a press guy, would you be, want him out there as a, as a surrogate? Or is he a little too hot? What I was going to say about Ralph was that, as you know, in politics, uh, it's important to be able to count on friends. And uh, and Ralph's a, and Ralph's a friend that Nikki was able to count on uh, uh, yesterday. It it was great to see him endorsing uh, endorsing her just as a you know as a friend and a member of the delegation. Um, New Hampshire um, has lost its first in the nation status on the Democratic side to South Carolina, um, at least technically, according to the the DNC's official schedule. Though it looks like New Hampshire will still have something they'll call they'll call a primary, um, but. Technically, South Carolina is now the first state on the Democratic side. Um, is there any uh, interest in re- on the Republican side of uh, of of doing the same? Um, you know, you'd have to talk to the state party about uh, the presidential primary calendar. You know, I think it benefits South Carolina to go early. Um, it, yeah. it, you know, it's not just that the candidates come here. Uh, and come often, but it's also an economic boon to the state to be able to hold debates and to be able to hold big events that feature all the candidates. 
Yeah. So I am for both si- both uh, both sides going as early in the process as possible, and uh, therefore having both um, therefore having uh, you know voters from both sides having a real significant say as they did four years ago on the Democratic side and as they have for so many years on the Republican side having a real say in this process. What do you think if uh, it, I know it's, it's two different scenarios, but if Haley and if, if Scott also jumps in the race, how do you think it changes things when you have one or two um, home state candidates in South Carolina? What do you think it, how do you think it affects this sort of in, in, interpretation of the results in South Carolina? And what does it mean specifically uh, for, for Haley? Um, I think a lot of folks will say that expectations will be very, very high. So, you know, it'll sort of turn South Carolina into a, a must-win state for her uh, and Scott if, uh, if if he jumps in. And if she um, – well, at the same time, it could also make the state less relevant if everyone thinks that, you know, Haley's, Haley or Scott is just going to run away with the South Carolina primary because of the, the that, home state advantage. That kind of hyper- What's your analysis? That- yeah, that kind of hypothetical uh, question is is not worth even fielding until we have two candidates uh, from the same state in there. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a pass on that one. Well, just a bit. Let's let's assume Scott doesn't get in. Do you, do you think South Carolina becomes must win for for Haley? I think it's an important state for her to show well in. I don't know if it's I don't know if there's any such thing as a must win state when you have so many early when you have so many primary states and so and such a fight for delegates. I don't know that any any one state is make or break for anybody. Um, you know, I just know that um, that what you have to do in this process is show strongly in every state, so that you frankly have that pack of media that's uh-huh. embedded with you continue to follow you and remind people that you're there, so that they don't forget, so that they don't forget that, you, so that they don't forget that there's a. Uh, Somebody, somebody with something to say uh, in this uh, in this important process. Rob, one thing we didn't talk about is, and you don't have to um, go into great detail, but what are the what are the things from Nikki Haley's time as governor that you think um, voters uh, should know about? So what what are the what are the big plot lines and achievements from those six years that um, that you know, if you were uh, formerly working for her campaign, you'd really want everyone uh, to know and to be able to brag about. Uh, she's a fighter. When she uh, cares about an issue, she's not going to. Uh, she's not going to bend to the will of anybody else. She's not afraid to stand alone and move uh, and move everybody else her way. Um, that's a that's a leadership style that's not um, that's not in the opposite of a collaborative way. That is a leadership style where you move people in your own direction. And I know this is a little bit hard, a little bit more difficult. But what what are the vulnerabilities that if uh, you were her campaign, you would have your your eye on and defending uh, against? Um, just some of those overplayed, uh, you know, plot lines that you've talked about didn't get along with the legislature when actually she 
grew into this governorship and uh, and and worked well with 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 a number of legislators because she always thought like a legislator. Um, and um, you know, as far as as far as any other vulnerabilities that that you'll see, I mean, she's a she's a pretty well pretty well vetted candidate. Um, there's you know news stories people can read about the you know ticky tack things that come up when you're uh, when you're uh, a governor when people are you know picking at you because you're the because you're the top dog, but. I'm gonna leave those. Uh, I'm gonna leave those things for other people to uh, to talk about, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take them on myself. Well, Rob, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. it very insightful conversation. Um, is there anything we didn't talk about uh, that you want to uh, get into, either you know Haley related or primary or just South Carolina politics related, or or anything else for that matter? You know, I just think that um, all of y'all should remember you've got to come down early and often to South Carolina. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a great place to cover politics. I mean, there are all these um, there are all these small venues where people get together to talk about these issues and hear from these candidates. Um, I'll never forget my first experience, kind of thinking, "Wow, there's something different about this place." When I went to on behalf of uh, Chairman Caton Dawson, I went to the Union County Republican Party meeting one night when I was working at the state party because he couldn't go, and i I just started a, I just started working there, and I didn't really understand the presidential the significance of the presidential primary until I saw Senator Sitting Senator Sam Brown back um, at the time. Uh, Come and another presidential candidate. It may have been. Um, it may have been Governor Romney come and literally talk to a group of maybe twelve people about their vision for the country. And I thought, this is this is a really interesting dynamic. I mean these these are two folks who you wouldn't expect. Um, to be making this trek to such a small town, to this courthouse where it was being held, where the meeting was being held, um, and talk to this this small group. And like I said, that's what voters demand, whether they're in uh, Lizard's Thicket Restaurant, which is a great meet-and-three place that people always like to visit. It's like, a, it's like one of the staples of presidential primary politics in South Carolina. People love to go there. Or it's a barbecue place somewhere else. Um, these voters demand and expect to hear from these candidates. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's something uh, it's something to behold. It's something I would tell political tourists to come and see. No matter no matter where they live, go to your closest early primary state and 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 hear from these presidential candidates because you'll hear them in a, in a way that's more candid than you're going to hear them once they become a nominee and are and are just talking from a teleprompter every time they make a public appearance, yeah. uh, you know, in front of 500 or 1,000 people. It's good advice, and uh, I'm going to take you up on that. So when I'm down there, um, I hope you'll take me to your favorite barbecue place. I'll um, do it. We'll, all, we'll be in South Carolina quite a bit over the next year. And yep. thank you for doing this. Thank you for sharing your unique insights about Haley and South Carolina. I really appreciate it, Rob. See you soon. Thank you. Absolutely. 
And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Almond is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you to Vince Kolb Lugo and South Carolina Public Radio for the production help in Columbia. Please subscribe to Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening.